Jonah 4, and we'll commence our reading there at the first verse. Hear once again the word of our God. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. And he prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord, was this not my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore I fled before unto Tarshish, for I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and repentest to thee of the evil. Therefore now, O Lord, take, I beseech thee, my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Then said the Lord, Doest thou well to be angry? So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city and there made him a booth and sat under it in the shadow till he might see what would become of the city. And the Lord God prepared a gourd and made it to come up over Jonah that it might be a shadow over his head to deliver him from his grief. So Jonah was exceeding glad of the gourd. But God prepared a worm when the morning arose the next day, and it smote the gourd that it withered. And it came to pass, when the sun did arise, that God prepared a vehement east wind, and the sun beat upon the head of Jonah that he fainted, and wished in himself to die, and said, It is better for me to die than to live. And God said to Jonah, Doest thou well to be angry for the gourd? And he said, I do well to be angry, even unto death. Then said the Lord, Thou hast had pity on the gourd, for the which thou hast not labored, neither madest it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should not I spare Nineveh, that great city wherein are more than six score thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand? and also much cattle. Amen. May the Lord add to us the blessing of his word this evening. We we left Jonah in Nineveh last midweek. As we said before, Jonah's real, well, the problem that he sees here in the first several verses of chapter 4 is not over Nineveh's deliverance. It is over the repentance of the Assyrians. He is still in the city, a city that is covered in ash, garbed in dress for mourning. He is in a city that is filled with cries, no longer of jubilation, no longer of boasting, but now of manifest what seems to be genuine repentance. To this, our prophet takes exception. And as we saw last midweek, the prophet takes this exception nowhere else but then to the Lord. And you remember how the prophet describes for us his own dealings with God. He is exceedingly displeased. He's very angry. And then as you continue to read, as we said before, you have there Jonah presented to us as a man described like we would expect one to be described who is doing the work of a just judge as one who is filled with righteous indignation. 
Those are the descriptors that the narrator gives to us of the prophet. He is described as a judge, passing sentence. That's where we left the prophet last week. As we come to our text this evening, starting in verses 4 and running down to the ninth verse, we find that much really hasn't changed, only that Jonah has now left Nineveh. He's left that, really, that theater of repentance. And he's gone to the east side of the city, the narrator tells us, to see what will happen to Nineveh. And this, of course, indicates to us that we are approaching day 40. We're approaching the 40th day of Nineveh's hearing Jonah's preaching and and Jonah being there and telling them that the Lord God would reveal his wrath. Of course, the unspoken caveat being, unless they repent. This is our context. And friend, as we look at these verses, of course, they are well known to us. The context itself is well known to us. But what we can't miss is how solemn this text really is. This is not a trivial text. Of course, no part of God's word is. But but this is one of those texts, in one sense, that's quite remarkable for how solemn it is. To illustrate this, I think it's helpful. If we remember, in the 17th century, many manuals to deal with the soul were published. And one theme that was insisted on by many writers was this, just... How far can the hypocrite go? In other words, how far can he go in terms of his external experience and religious things? And on the other side, how far can the Christian fall and yet remain genuinely a child of God? Manuals were published really left, right, and center in Protestantism at the time. And John Owen picked up one such manual, actually the manual written by Hermann Vitzius, a Dutch theologian from the continent. And as Owen set the book down, he said this. He said, let me never cease to marvel how far the hypocrite can go. And never let me cease to tremble or be horrified at how far the child of God may fall. That really should be the way we approach this text this evening. This is a remarkable fall. This is a remarkable moment. And it really stands even as a warning to us this evening. Now, I would say that perhaps it would be wise to take the 10th and 11th verses as we look at this remarkable moment, as those last two verses do explain to us a lot of the events that we have in our text this evening. And there's certainly some merit to that argument, but really, I want us to see this evening that there is much in this text that even goes beyond the explanation we're given in verses 10 and 11. We're given more detail in our text this evening about the prophet and God's dealings with him than just an explanation of why Nineveh is spared. And so I want us to take up these verses, verses 4 to 9, with that focus. God's dealings with the prophet and the prophet's dealings with God. Now as we look at these verses, the fourth verse begins, of course, with that question. God asks the prophet, doest thou well to be angry? And I'll just say at this stage, beloved, it's a striking question, isn't it? After such manifest presumption, this is the Lord's response. A question. Not fire from heaven. Not another storm. Not another fish. A question. 
But then as we continue to read, verses 5 and following, you have, of course, blessing given from God. And the Lord God prepared a gourd and made it to come over Jonah that it might be a shadow over his head to deliver him from his grief. So Jonah was exceeding glad of the gourd. And note what the inspired historian tells us. He tells us not only the blessing that was given, but he tells us also the divine intention behind it. Again, to deliver him from his grief. Now, as we come away from that moment, of course, we come to the point where that blessing is removed. But God prepared a worm when the morning arose. It smote the gourd that it withered. That's really the first of three steps of affliction that Jonah encounters. The second is this. God prepared a vehement east wind. The third, and the sun beat down upon the head of Jonah that he fainted. Here we have blessing given and blessing removed, and greater affliction introduced. But our text concludes with the question that it began with. Doest thou well to be angry? With that addition, for the gourd. And then, remarkably, the first question receives no answer, but this second question does. I do well to be angry even unto death, says the prophet. This is an explicit answer. One could argue that really the answer is given to us in verse 5, but that answer is implicit. This is explicit and emphatic. We shouldn't miss that. Now, beloved, holding all of these things together, this is an intimate, profound scene. I want you to notice just the focus There are many parts of God's word that give to us, of course, historical narrative. But in this case, the narrative that's given to us is written so overtly as a history of providence. What I mean by that is, of course, all of history is, of course, a record of God's past dealings. But but in this text, the writer never allows us to forget either divine intention or the prophet's responses to it. There is profound emphasis placed on God who is acting. This is providential history in its most explicit, most overt form. And I would have you, I would remind you only that in this text, Nineveh is eclipsed. This is God's dealings with the prophet. Nineveh now becomes really a secondary or perhaps even a tertiary issue. This is God and Jonah, the inspired historian tells us. These are the two primary characters we're supposed to see. And of course, as we look at this, of course, this is a record of God's dealings with the prophet. This is providence. And this, of course, is also instruction via symbol. God has raised up this blessing and he has removed it, of course, as a form of instruction. These things are symbolic. And as I said before, verses 10 and 11, as we come to them, God willing, next week, Uh, They'll explain to us in greater detail what they are. But the point that I would drive home this evening, friend, is just this. That all of this instruction that we have, even in this moment, is primarily dealing with God and Jonah. That's what we should see first and foremost out of all of this. And as we come really to a conclusion of sorts, how we're supposed to understand this, Holding this text with all that has gone before, we see a familiar theme. 
In this fourth chapter, you have sovereign grace and affliction. And against it, you have puerile malcontent. You have a discontented prophet confronted with a sovereign God. This is one of, of course, the overarching themes in the whole book that comes in many ways to the fore in this fourth chapter. Beloved, as we look at this text, the obvious point, as this is sacred scripture that is for our edification, is the question, where am I? This, of course, is not just history to entertain those who might have a penchant for such things. This is still a manual on repentance. Still a question for you and I. Where am I in this text? To get us to something of an answer, the theme that I would insist on this evening is just this. That malcontent unfits the soul for blessing and affliction. And the word malcontent there, I don't mean somebody who is discontented because they lack certain material goods. I mean malcontent in its broadest sense. I mean somebody who is not reconciled to the divine will. Somebody who is not reconciled to God's dealings with them. Who is not contented to be under a sovereign God. Malcontent unfits the soul for blessing and affliction. And I want us to see this under three headings. I want us to see this as it comes to us in our text. As mercy abused, misery abhorred, and majesty aspersed. And so take first of all mercy abused. The Lord God prepared a gourd and made it come over Jonah that it might be a shadow over his head to deliver him from his grief. Now, beloved, as we read this text, we have, of course, the, the really the result of this account always in the back of our mind. And so I think often when we read that the gourd was given to us, we assume primarily that the purpose of the gourd is really to be taken away. That's part of the lesson, isn't it? But what's striking is the, the divine writer tells us that not only was it the case, yes, in the divine decree that the, that the gourd would be removed, but it was also part of the divine intention to comfort a recalcitrant Jonah in his grief, in his sinful grief. God had prepared a gourd to mollify Jonah's displeasure. I think that's a detail we quickly forget. But here the, here the inspired historian emphasizes this clearly. To deliver him from his grief, the gourd was given. Jonah brings presumption to the table. God consoles him. Jonah brings nothing but malice and God extends mercy. It's a striking thing. But then we have Jonah's response. Jonah was exceeding glad of the gourd. In fact, that's given to us in two ways in the original. To translate it very literally, we would say something like this. Jonah rejoiced, sorry, Jonah greatly rejoiced over the gourd in which he greatly rejoiced. Of course, the text is emphasizing something very basic. Jonah has taken up this as the object, really the sole object of his delight in this moment. And so our translators very, very accurately describe this to us as him, as himself being exceedingly glad. 
prophet has an undue affection for the mercy that's been given. And I would say this just briefly. Friend, there is, of course, no record in this chapter of any thanksgiving. Jonah is exceedingly glad for this token of mercy. But he's certainly not returning any thanks. What does this teach us? Well, it teaches us, of course, by example, that the malcontent, the malcontent soul cherishes blessing over its benefactor. Beloved, when you think about this, this what seems to be a very simple and, and straightforward text, how different does Jonah appear than what ought to be the character, what is described to be the character of God's people? I mean, this is how they are known in Scripture, as being a thankful people for every mercy and every good that has been received. It's given to us in Psalm 79. Thy people and sheep of thy pasture will give thee thanks forever. It's not only their temporal marker, as it were, it is genuinely their eternal character, their everlasting, their everlasting disposition. Not so the prophet in this moment. In fact, if you even go back to Jonah 2, how different does this Jonah appear against that? I, says Jonah, will sacrifice unto thee with a voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that that I have vowed. Some alteration, isn't it? Some shocking change between chapters 2 and 4. God has been merciful, and Jonah is fixated on the gourd and never returns thanks to his God. The friend, this shows us something, doesn't it? The soul that is malcontent, as we saw him before in the first three verses of this chapter, well, friend, that frame, that discontented frame, does not accord in any way with gratitude. It can't. To be malcontent, to take umbrage with God's dealings with us, will always, will always sap us of thanksgiving. Will always reduce our gratitude. And beloved, we see this in two ways, don't we? We see this in the, in the fact that simply sin begets sin. My, my aspersions cast upon God, I should not expect to stop there. When I have discontent in my heart with any of God's dealings, friend, hasn't, haven't we already learned by experience that sin will always reach, for, will reach further, always, always produce more. Jonah, first of all, is grieved at God's dealings with Nineveh. Now he won't even return thanks for the mercy he himself receives. The hardness of heart only hardens more. But I'd also remind you too, friend, that in this text you have undue affections brought to the fore. The historian sets before us Jonah as a man who is genuinely excessive in his delight over this blessing. She set, he set his affections on the gourd and not on his God. That really is the point. And friend, isn't it not, it's not terribly unlike, is it, how Israel's described? She did not know, says the Lord, that I gave her corn and wine and oil and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. Jonah here functions like a man who does not know the God from whom he has received this blessing. 
No acknowledgement of the goodness that he's received. All that he's fixed on is the temporal goodness that he now enjoys. Jonah here is like the child who spurns the father but cherishes his inheritance. Really like the prodigal son, isn't he? Calling for the good things from his father while despising him all the while. Friend, mark this sign. We could even put it in the reverse, couldn't we? Yes, a malcontent soul will always have a thankless disposition, but we can turn it around just as appropriately. If I am not filled with gratitude, if I am not thankful, I should see that as a sign, symptom of my own malcontent with God's dealings. If that's mercy abused, we come then to the next stage, Jonah's affliction, and we see here misery aboard. God prepared a worm when the morning arose. It smote the gourd that it withered. And then we're told, Jonah wished in himself to die. The cherished and really the abused temporal mercy that the prophet has received is now removed. And justly so, we would say, wouldn't we? This is the thing that Jonah has set his affections on, for which he's given God no thanks. It's now taken away, but, but here's the prophet's response. It's despair. He despairs even of life. The absence of the good that he has so cherished has led him to abandon hope, to abandon hope in the land of the living. Now, beloved, as we look at this, again, Jonah sets before us an example. The malcontent soul despairs under affliction. Before we even look at that particularly, take the opposite. Take the godly example for a moment. Here the apostle tells us, In whatsoever state I am, therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed, both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. That's the character of godly contentment. It fits a man both to be abased, that is to be afflicted, to be removed of all of those temporal good things that you once possessed, and to abound, to possess great blessings, great temporal good. Contentment fits a man for both. Take even what the prophet says in Isaiah 57. Under affliction, God's people are told thus, Thou art wearied in the greatness of thy way, yet saidst thou not, there is no hope. They know affliction. Their way is great and difficult. And yet they are of such a disposition that they do not throw off all hope. They do not despair. In both cases, we have something quite opposite to our prophet. So what do we make of this? Well, friend, I want you to notice, first of all, that as soon as the soul attaches itself to temporal good in the way that the prophet manifestly has, he takes the means, he takes the means as the source of blessing. Jonah took the gourd as the source of mercy rather than his God. And so once the gourd is removed... Once the prophet has set his affection in such a way and his hope on such an object, 
once that's removed, well, friend, what room is there for hope? You see this in a few things. You see this in how Habakkuk describes his generation. They sacrifice unto their net, he says, and burn incense unto their drag, because by them their portion is fat and their meat is plenteous. You see what he's saying. This generation has come to believe that the tools which they have are really the source of their blessing. Not terribly unlike the prophet. The gourd itself was the source of the prophet's mercy. Now that's gone. And so what does he do? He assumes that if the instrument that is the source is removed, so also is hope. But friend, I would even go a step further, and we can. When a lively faith is exercised, this is opposite Jonah's experience. Here we have Jonah really manifesting to us a man, yes, filled with the grace of God, and yet a man whose faith is languishing. And there should, in our minds, be a connection between his despair and faith. I want you to just take an example from Egypt, from Israel's own experience. When they were craving Egypt's leeks and onions, when they were longing to go back to the house of bondage for the wealth and the comfort they supposedly enjoyed there, this is what they said. Can God furnish a table in the wilderness? They believed not in God, nor trusted in his salvation. To covet Egypt's leeks and onions is fundamentally antithetical to faith. And so, what do they ask? Can God furnish a table in the wilderness? Is there any ground for hope? You see, friend, when our faith is languishing, when we begin to take the instrument as the source, rather than as a means only, we shouldn't be surprised that when affliction comes, hope seems so remote. We have misplaced the object for the source. And so, friend, mark the sign. Hopelessness is really a token evidence that we have given ourselves to trusting in the means and not in God. Hopelessness is really our symptom that we set our faith on an object that was only an instrument. I believe that brings us to our third and our final point as we close. Jonah has abused mercy. He has abhorred his misery. And then we find in the conclusion of our text, he has also cast aspersions upon majesty. Doest thou well to be angry for the gourd? It's as though the Lord is saying, is it good? And this is so striking. Is it righteous for you to be angry for the gourd? And really, the gourd here stands for any of God's works. And I want you to understand, beloved, as we look at this text, it's wrong for us to read over this too, too quickly. This is a, quite a profound question. What's striking is, the Lord is not asking Jonah subjectively to answer this question. In other words, he's not saying, Jonah, does it seem to you, does it seem to you that your anger is righteous. It's a striking thing because it's far more objective. God is coming to a prophet who has, as we saw in the first three verses of this chapter, taken upon himself 
the posture of a righteous judge. And God comes to him and asks him, is it righteous for you to be so displeased? Do you do well to be angry at my, my dealings, at my works? It's a staggering question, isn't it? And then, perhaps even more staggering is Jonah's reply. I do well to be angry, even unto death. A friend, I suppose most today would say that this is a token evidence that Jonah was suffering from some kind of mental uh, mental uh, problem, uh, something like a bipolar disorder or something of that stripe. Uh, but if we take that tact with the text, I would say that we're not reading it close enough. I want you to notice, friend, just a few things. In the 8th verse, we're told this, that before the question comes back to Jonah and before he makes an answer explicit, we're told here that God prepared a vehement east wind. Now, if we were reading this text in Israel to the generation to whom it first came, this would be a striking statement. God prepared a vehement east wind. And here's why. That's striking because, first of all, in Job, we're told this, regarding the wicked man, the east wind carrieth him away, and he departeth, and as a storm hurleth him out of his place, for God shall cast upon him and not spare. Note that. The token of judgment according upon the wicked man is this east wind. Take Jeremiah, I will scatter them as with an east wind before the enemy. I will show them the back and not the face in the day of their calamity. Then take Ezekiel, being planted, shall it prosper, he asks, shall it not utterly wither? When the east wind toucheth it, it shall wither in the furrows where it grew. All throughout the scriptures, beloved, this phrase, the east wind, is described for us as a token of divine and special judgment. And so as the Israelite read this for the first time, it's striking, isn't it? That here, this desert wind, this scorching desert blast, that is a token of divine wrath, really from the inception of special revelation on to this moment, falls upon the prophet. And that becomes even more profound when you remember the context. This token of God's wrath that falls on the prophet, when does it fall on him? It falls on him very likely around day 40. Putting all of this together, what this looks like very much is this. That as Jonah waited for some manifestation of divine wrath on day 40 or day 41, depending on how you count it, it did come but it didn't fall on Nineveh. The east wind fell on him. The token of God's wrath came on the prophet. And so go back just for a moment to Jonah's reply. I do well to be angry even unto death. This token of your wrath fell upon me and not on them. This wrath that I was waiting for to fall upon the Assyrians comes upon me and me only, I am right to be angry, outraged, that I'm under this special token of wrath, while Nineveh is spared. 
This is a question not, friend, not terribly remote from our own experience then, isn't it? Sorry, this is an answer. It's not terribly remote from our own experience. Jonah here sees no reason for God's displeasure to fall on him. That's what's patently obvious in the text. He is right, which, of course, by implication means God is wrong to bring this manifest token of divine displeasure on his head. He justifies himself and is quite free in casting aspersions on divine justice. This teaches us as we close that that the malcontent soul prefers to justify self rather than God. The malcontent soul prefers to justify self rather than God. Take Job's experience. Then was kindled the wrath of Elihu, the son of Barachel, the Buzite of the kindred of Ram. Against Job was his wrath kindled because he justified himself rather than God. It was Elihu's indignation when he heard Job more quick to acquit himself than the Lord. But then hear the Lord's response to Job. Wilt thou also disannul my judgment? Wilt thou condemn me that thou mayest be righteous? Job was a genuine believer. But he fell into a frame not terribly unlike our prophet. The tokens of divine wrath had fallen on him. And instead in any way seeking to justify the Lord. His primary aim was to clear self. And here's the Lord's reply to that. Wilt thou condemn me that thou mayest be righteous? Beloved, our posture ought to be, let God be true, but every man a liar. Beloved, was it unmerited for Jonah to be under a token of God's displeasure? Of course it wasn't. We see that in the text, don't we? A man who is presumed to stand over the Most High. One who is taking exception to God's dealings. One who has set his affections unduly on the creature and not on the creator. One who has been thankless in the face of such mercy. But friend, all of these things are obvious to us. Well, they're not obvious to Jonah. His malcontent, his taking umbrage with God's dealings at any point has blinded himself to seeing that perhaps the east wind was right in falling on him. And beloved, that precisely is the same frame that you and I will undergo if we give in to this temptation. We take exception to any of God's dealings with us. Expect that we'll begin to see less sin in ourselves. We'll begin to complain more freely against the Most High. No, beloved, our posture ought to be like Daniel. O Lord, to us belongeth confusion of face because we have sinned against thee. To the Lord our God belong mercies and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. And so we have our prophet, a man who abused mercy, a man who abhorred misery, a man who even cast aspersions on divine majesty, a malcontent man, But even as I say that, beloved, we have to be careful not to abuse this text. 
I think some would look at this text like they would David and say, well, I see that same kind of sin in myself, and therefore, since Jonah was obviously a believer, because that same malcontent is in me, I don't have to worry. And beloved, I want you to understand that this text, in one case, can be an encouragement to the believer. That perhaps if we find ourselves in such a frame, we need not give up hope. But it is an abuse of the text. And I would say this emphatically, it is an abuse of the text if we use this to justify our own spiritual frame. I say that for one very basic reason. Beloved, if you look through all of God's people, you will find sin. In fact, you will find sins among them, as you find in the case of David, and even in the case of Jonah this evening, that are heinous, that are God-provoking and high-handed. But one thing you'll find in the godly, one thing you'll find in Jonah that you'll find in no one who is regenerate, is their repentance. And that's what matters. That is the sound ground for hope. You say, well, how do we see that Jonah has repented? Beloved, I'd set before you just the fact that through the running centuries, we take Jonah to be the author of this book. It is Jonah writing under divine inspiration who has showed us himself in really the ugliest of colors, exposed to us his sin without really hiding any point. Beloved, That, if we mirror Jonah in that, well, then there is ground to hope. If we're quite willing at God's command to repent in this way, then and only then can we safely safely assume that our case is good. But then I would say this too, beloved, as we look at this text, the inspired historian, the prophet himself, presents to us this great fall. But even as he does so, he does not fail to set before us God's mercy to him while he fell. This, of course, aggravates Jonah's guilt, doesn't it? He sinned not only against the word of God, he sinned against the mercy he received. But do you see the tenderness of God in this text? Jonah was grieved. He was malcontent, not with sinners in Nineveh, with Jehovah in heaven. This is the thing that caused him the grief. And yet God, and this is in our text itself, to deliver him from his grief, gave him mercy even while Jonah's heart and lips were breathing rebellion. If we miss this part of the text, beloved, we miss quite a lot. Again, as I said, we miss just how guilty Jonah has become to sin against such love. We also miss, strikingly, how clearly God presents himself as one ready to reclaim bold, presumptuous children. You'll even be merciful to them here. He'll be merciful to them even in their presumption. Oh, the long-suffering of our God. The great mercy of our God. The boundless depths of his grace. Beloved, do you see yourself here? 
because you should. The very God that you and I have sinned against this day was, the, was also the same God who gave you breath. The same God who upheld you as you traveled. The same God who kept alive that work of grace within when sin otherwise would have extinguished it. See this God, beloved. But as we close, there is an exhortation in this text, and that, of course, is to resign, to be resigned to the divine will in all things. And so that is the exhortation. Beloved, learn contentment. We so desperately need. We need to be a people weaned from this world and a people who far more quickly justify God than self. That even in our hardest providences, we are quick to say that he does all things well. That needs to be our disposition. And so I would exhort you to that, but but I would also remind you that the only way to have that that disposition is first of all submit to our sovereign God in the gospel. There is no other way to find this resignation than to come first of all to the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is no way to have this resignation to the divine will without seeking it from Christ. Amen.